Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 237, Manuel and Andronicus. We ended our last episode with Manuel at rest. The emperor had peace treaties in place with every major rival in the Balkans and Anatolia and took a well-earned holiday. And I'm not being flippant. Our historian John Kinemus literally says... Since there was nothing to be seen in any direction which threatened the Romans' realm, the emperor went to one of the villages near Constantinople for relaxation. As promised, I've been researching the emperor's personality, his relationship with his wider family, and how he organized his court, church, and capital. This turned up so much information that I think we'll take a very quick end-of-the-century-style tour around Manuel's world before the narrative resumes. Don't worry, though. Each of these episodes will be focused on things we need to know for the narrative going forward. Today, let's talk about Manuel the person, his time on the throne so far, and what was going on back home while he was away on all his campaigns. We'll then turn our attention to his great friend and rival, his cousin Andronicus. I formally introduced Manuel back in episode 230, but let's cover a little of the same ground again. Manuel was born in 1118, a few months after his grandfather Alexius died. Manuel was the youngest of eight children and the fourth boy, so presumably no one really thought about him becoming emperor one day. Manuel was born into a crowded palace, not just his seven siblings, but dozens of relatives from the extended imperial clan. As you know, when Alexius took power, the Ducai and the Komnenoi intermarried in order to secure their hold on power. To put a stop to the civil wars which had destroyed the empire, Alexius kept marrying senior men into his family. Men like Nicephorus Melisinos, George Paleologos, and Nicephorus Vurienios found themselves drawn into the imperial orbit through these unions, and their children would then marry someone else from this growing aristocracy. 
In such an environment, children would often form close bonds with those who were the same age as them, rather than just their own nuclear family. One of Manuel's closest childhood companions was therefore his cousin Andronicus. Manuel grew up to be swarthy, like his father, good-looking and athletic. He relished the soldier's life and got on particularly well with the Latin knights who served in the Byzantine army. As a teenager, learning the ropes, he seems to have been particularly impressed with these Franks and Normans. Everything from their style of fighting to their oaths of loyalty seemed to have been to his liking. During the siege of Neo-Caesarea in 1140, he raced to the rescue of soldiers under attack, placing himself in great danger. Actions unbecoming for a crown prince, but perfectly worthy of the chivalric ideals which the Latin knights professed. During Manuel's first campaign as emperor, you may recall him laying ambushes for the Turks and personally leading the charge against them. Allegedly, he was egged on by his Latin companions, who told him that after getting married, it was customary for a husband to impress his wife with feats of bravery. Manuel had, of course, just got married to a Latin bride. Manuel fought using a long lance in the Latin style. There's a whole passage in Kinemus's history where Manuel shows Raymond of Antioch his very long lance, and Raymond is impressed by its size and unsure if he could handle such a long weapon, and yeah, the whole thing was just too embarrassing to recount. As emperor, Manuel would hold several western-style tourneys. He and his entourage had clearly learnt how to joust and eagerly took part in the displays, keen to prove that they could match the Franks in feats of arms. Komnenos did not neglect traditional Byzantine strength, though. As you've heard repeatedly in the narrative, he made the most of imperial ceremonial to intimidate and impress foreign visitors. And Manuel had paid attention to his tutors, picking up enough medical knowledge to personally recommend treatments to both Conrad during the Second Crusade and the King of Jerusalem, Baldwin, when the latter injured himself during a hunt in Cilicia. It was a similar hunting accident in Cilicia which had thrust the 24-year-old Manuel into power in the first place. Komnenos must have been as shocked as anyone to find himself elevated to the highest of heights. When he set off on campaign, his father was healthy and there were three brothers in the queue ahead of him. But that was down to one by the time John died, leaving Manuel in charge of the army and, by default it seems, the empire. Manuel had to lean heavily on his father's right-hand man, John Aksuk. Aksuk, as you may recall, was a Turkish slave captured as a boy and raised alongside John Komnenos. The two remained best friends throughout their life. Aksuk was John's senior general and took on serious administrative responsibilities. Awkwardly, it seems that Aksuk disagreed with his old friend's decision to promote Manuel, favouring his older brother Isaac, who was stuck back at Constantinople. But with the army acclaiming Manuel, Aksuk went along with things and offered advice to the new emperor. Feelings were still running high, though, a year later. 
during one of Manuel's first campaigns, a discussion took place at dinner as to whether Manuel was as good a general as his father. John Aksuk, abandoning common sense, argued forcefully that the son had a long way to go to live up to his father. Andronicus, a staunch ally of Manuel at this point, rebuked him, and swords were drawn. Still, Manuel felt he had to placate Aksuk and kept him on as his senior commander until his death in 1151. The church was another source of opposition to Manuel in those early days. When he turned up in the capital to claim the throne, there were many who made it clear that they would not crown him. Fortunately for Komnenos, the sitting patriarch had just died, and he was able to appoint someone who would. The church remained aloof, though. Manuel had to deal with seven different patriarchs in the first 13 years of his reign, some of whom resigned because of disagreements with the emperor. In order to gain their support, Manuel made sweeping financial concessions. In his second year in power, he exempted all priests from paying one-off taxes which the state levied. Four years later, he gave blanket confirmation to all church privileges that had been granted by his father and grandfather. And five years further on, he gave extraordinary rights to the property held by the patriarchal church, exempting them from all taxation. At each stage, we can see Manuel trying to ensure that he could take the church's support for granted. Each concession coinciding with another crisis or scandal the emperor was dealing with. First the disputed succession, then the passage of the Second Crusade, and the third a religious debate which broke out amongst the clergy of Constantinople. This controversy revolved around whether the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross was offered to God alone or to the Trinity as a whole. The details are less important to us than the fact that Manuel got personally involved. In May 1157, he presided over a church council and quizzed those involved on matters of theology. Now in his late thirties, Manuel was developing the confidence to stand up to the church. He ended the matter by condemning the clergyman seen to be out of line and confirming himself as the champion of orthodoxy. To try and win over the people of Constantinople itself, Manuel regularly held triumphal processions during his first decade in power. He did not process down the Messi, as had been tradition for centuries. Instead, the emperor would enter the city through one of the gates in the sea walls, near where the old Acropolis of Byzantium sat, or where the Topkapi Palace is now. This provided a shorter route to the Hagia Sophia, which saved some money, but also meant that the procession could pass right by the Orphanotrophaeon, the imperially sponsored orphanage and poorhouse which you may recall Alexius had refounded. This meant that direct recipients of Komnenian largesse would be front and centre as the Vasilevs passed by. Court propaganda celebrating Manuel's victories was also pumped out constantly during his reign, a valuable source of information for historians covering this era. Manuel's court was more relaxed than his father's and grandfather's. 
Alexius was a religious man, but he also chose to present himself as a restorer of morality and orthodoxy. A contrast to the lavish reign of men like Constantine Monomachos, who'd publicly gifted his girlfriend her own apartments. This new, stricter mood was inherited by John, but seems to have lapsed at times during Manuel's early years. Manuel and his cousin Andronicus were both known for sleeping around, including with members of their own family. None of which was considered particularly scandalous, at least where Manuel was concerned, and we hear no complaints about the treatment of his German wife, despite the fact that he cheated on her throughout their marriage. We're aware of at least four people who claimed to be Manuel's illegitimate children who were born during the 1150s and 60s. Manuel and Bertha were married for 13 years and had two children, both daughters, one of whom died young. This left Manuel without an obvious heir and may have encouraged those who agitated to replace him while he was away in Cilicia in 1159, an incident we touched on last episode. As you'll recall, Manuel entered Antioch in triumph and then led a united Christian army against Nur al-Din. But before they'd got very far, the emperor accepted a peace offer and raced home to Constantinople. Manuel had been tipped off that something was up by his wife Bertha. She reported that a senior official, Theodore Stipiotes, was secretly canvassing opinion for a change of regime. Then suddenly Andronicus escaped from his prison. Remember that Andronicus had been locked up a few years earlier for attempting to murder Manuel. Interestingly, the sources don't indicate that the two events were connected. But even if they weren't, it was clearly too dangerous a situation for Manuel to stay away. And so he raced back to the Bosphorus. Stipiotes and another official were both blinded, and Andronicus was quickly recaptured. In some reports of the Stipiotes affair, there is talk of a prophecy which led this bureaucrat of high standing to attempt his coup. Medieval histories often mention omens and sayings that were going around, and it's not always clear if there's any truth in them. But in this case, we do know that Manuel Komnenos was very interested in astrology. Not only did he consort openly with astrologers, but in the family church at the Pantocrator complex, the signs of the zodiac were incorporated into the decoration of the floor. This is, of course, highly unusual for a church and indicates the importance of astrology to the Komni Noi. That decoration is still there, by the way, and can be viewed on a certain tour of Istanbul. Our historian Coniates is very critical of Manuel's astrological beliefs. He claims that the emperor fluffed one of the naval campaigns against Sicily because he relied on the stars aligning correctly before giving the go-ahead for an attack. He also tells us that Manuel and his court were taken in by a particular prophecy about the Komnenian succession. I haven't included many anecdotes of this kind during the narrative, but occasionally, from Heraclius onwards, there have been emperors who we're told gave in to superstition or dabbled in the occult. Given that some of the historians reporting this are churchmen, it always seemed like a way to damn an emperor retrospectively. But in this case, there really seems to be something to it. 
Apparently, some kind of wise man at Manuel's court predicted that the succession of Komnenian emperors would follow the Greek word for blood. In English, that would read as Aima, as in A-I-M-A. The point here is the initials, A, I, and M, standing for Alexius, John, and Manuel. Remember that in Greek, the name John is Iohannes, beginning with an I. The upshot of this is that the next emperor, Manuel's successor, would have a name that began with an A. This prophecy seems to have taken on a life of its own outside the court, and continued to hold some power with branches of the Komnenos family after the sack of Constantinople in 1204. Anyway, back in Manuel's day, the idea that his successor's name would start with an A created a certain energy around men like Andronicus, or even Alexius Aksuk, the son of John Aksuk. We might think this was all a load of nonsense, but then Manuel, anxious that he had no heir, would adopt one and rename him Alexius. And then, when he finally does conceive a son of his own, he named him Alexius too, when he might have been expected to call him John, to honour his father, as John himself had done. All of that to say that astrology was a part of Manuel's life, and that his lack of a son did worry him. Bertha died in 1160, while Manuel was on campaign in Anatolia. He returned home to honour her life, but also to begin looking for a new wife. The alliance with Germany had turned cold, so the emperor asked for a new bride from Utremir. As I mentioned last time, King Baldwin of Jerusalem had requested a Roman wife, and Theodora, Manuel's niece, was duly delivered. Now, Manuel asked Baldwin to return the favour. Eventually, Maria of Antioch was chosen and married Manuel in December 1161. This suited Byzantine needs very nicely. It strengthened their ties to the whole of Utremir, as well as providing a dynastic connection to Antioch itself. Maria was a renowned beauty, and eight years later did provide the emperor with a son. That eight-year wait was an anxious one, though, as we'll see when the narrative moves forward. Maria, by the way, was the daughter of Constance of Antioch and our old friend Raymond. She was also the great-granddaughter of Bohemond, which means that Alexius's grandson married Bohemond's great-granddaughter, which is something. I closed our last episode by asking why Manuel made peace with the Turks of Iconium instead of using their weakness to attack them. One part of the answer may have been the feeling that Manuel had only just come to a standstill. He'd been fighting wars and putting out fires for 17 years now. Perhaps a rest was needed, and Manuel wanted to spend some quality time producing an heir. He may also have felt that time was on his side. He was still only 43, and in good health. He hadn't forgotten about the Turks, but those campaigns could perhaps wait for another day. Okay then, let's talk about the other half of the coin, Andronicus Komnenos. 
As I mentioned earlier, Andronicus was born around the same time as Manuel. The two boys grew up together, sharing the same education and training. They played together, and they competed in sports together. They were good friends. Kinemus says the emperor liked Andronicus exceedingly. But while Manuel was the son of the sitting emperor, Andronicus was the son of the black sheep of the family. His father was Isaac Komnenos, the younger brother of the Emperor John. You may recall that Isaac rebelled against John, spending many years at Turkic courts, looking for an opportunity to return to Byzantium. Eventually, he did return, but on his hands and knees, begging for John's forgiveness. Isaac was forgiven, but he was never trusted again. It's not entirely clear to me where Andronicus was during the whole of his father's exile. His older brother John was certainly with his father. And you may remember that John was the one who betrayed the Romans during the siege of Neo-Caesarea and went over to the Turks. John would actually convert to Islam and marry one of the Sultan of Iconium's daughters. Andronicus was probably back at Constantinople, suffering the humiliation of his family's various misdeeds. Andronicus was destined for a life of obscurity at this point, unlikely to rise much beyond his station, and always being looked on with suspicion. His friendship with Manuel wasn't going to help him much, since Manuel was the most junior prince of his house. The quirk of fate which brought Manuel to power also pushed Andronicus back to prominence. As one of Manuel's closest friends, he was now in the inner circle, and as we heard earlier, he was willing to stand up to those who spoke out against the young emperor. So what happened? Why did Andronicus rebel against Manuel? As we discussed back in episode 235, Andronicus was sent to the border with Hungary to be the governor there, but within a few months he'd made contact with the king of Hungary and asked him to put Andronicus on the throne. Andronicus then attempted to murder Manuel during a hunt. That's what we're told. Anyway, both Kinemus and Coniates add other details. Kinemus thinks that Andronicus was jealous of the favour which Manuel showed to another of his relatives. This was one of the emperor's nephews who lost an eye during a joust. Out of sympathy, Kinemus says, Manuel promoted this nephew to a very high court rank, a rank Andronicus clearly imagined would be his. Aconiates, philosophically, says that Andronicus was always going to be a figure of suspicion, first because of his family's prior behaviour, second because Andronicus looked every inch an emperor, and third because of his arrogant and magnetic personality. Coniates also talks about a scandalous affair that Andronicus had with his cousin's daughter, Eudokia, or Ephthokia. As we'll see in future episodes, Manuel was careful to arrange marriages for all his family members, and so an affair between two of them could be extremely damaging. It also angered Eudokia's relatives. When Manuel confronted Andronicus about it, the latter shrugged it off, pointing out that Manuel had once upon a time slept with his own niece. Such bold speech to an emperor can go one of two ways, can't it? Either it can remind Manuel that here is someone who knew me before I came to power and can speak the refreshing truth, 
Or it can make you think, I need this man locked up before he poisons others against me. Those competing instincts seem to have battled in Manawil's mind across the course of his life. So whether it was just for the attempted murder or something else, Manawil ordered Andronicus to be imprisoned in the palace at Constantinople. It seems like these high-ranking prisoners were locked up at night, but were allowed out in the day, at least within certain well-guarded rooms of the palace. Andronicus was confined for three or four years before breaking out when Manawil was in Cilicia. Both Kinemus and Coniates describe Andronicus's legendary escapes, so there must be some truth to them. For the first one, he went full Shawshank, tunnelling his way through the waste pipes in his cell, carefully covering up his work each night. According to Coniates, he escaped just so he could hook up with his wife and leave her pregnant with another child, which seems extremely doubtful. Whatever he did do, Andronicus was caught soon afterwards and taken to a fortress away from the palace. Andronicus did have three children with his first wife, naming his eldest son Manuel. As the narrative moves forward, Andronicus will escape again. This time he makes a wax impression of his door key, pretends to be a slave, and creates a dummy to fool his guards. It's all very dramatic and naturally makes me suspicious. Bribery is also part of the story, and that seems the likeliest source of his breakouts. Andronicus will flee to one of the Rus' courts, where he will be welcomed, and as the Byzantines return to war with Hungary, he will lead a Rus' contingent to Manuel's aid, winning his forgiveness. If that weren't extraordinary enough, Manuel will then reappoint him as the governor of Cilicia, which was his first job, and which he failed at. I will leave the story there because next week, a special guest will tell us what happened next, and it's even more interesting and dramatic than the first part of Andronicus's life story. That's all for today. In a future episode, I'm going to talk about this new Komnenian aristocracy and the way in which it now dominated the state. Manuel was forced to manage this new social group very carefully, and that may offer us clues as to why he didn't just squash Andronicus when he had the chance. Though, as we've heard today, personal affection must have been a part of the mix. How else can we explain the emperor's patience with a rival who so clearly itched to be a leader in his own right? Next time, we'll be joined by historian Catherine Pangonis to talk about her book, Queens of Jerusalem, an account of the female leaders of Utremir and the fascinating lives that they lived. The timing is perfect because one of those women is Theodora, Manuel's niece, who was sent off to marry the king of Jerusalem. Who do you think she will end up running away with, sparking a huge scandal? Why, it's Andronicus, of course. <laughs>